Book Eleven, Part Two of the Autobiography of Goethe, Volume Two, From My Life, Poetry and Truth, translated by John Oxenford, Section Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Goethe, Volume Two by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, translated by John Oxenford, 1812-1877, Book Eleven, Part Two. The historico-poetical Christian names which have intruded into the German church, in the place of the sacred names, not unfrequently to the annoyance of the officiating clergyman, are without a doubt to be regarded as small ramifications of the romantico-poetical pictures. This very impulse to honor one's child by a well-sounding name, even if the name has nothing further behind it, is praiseworthy, and this connection of an imaginary world with the real one diffuses an agreeable luster over the whole life of the person. A beautiful child whom with satisfaction we call Bertha, we should think we offended if we were to call it Ursulblanding. With a cultivated man, not to say a lover, such a name would certainly falter on the lips. The cold world, which judges only from one side, is not to be blamed if it sets down as ridiculous and objectionable all that comes forward as imaginary. But the thinking connoisseur of mankind must know how to estimate it according to its worth for the instruction of the lovers on the lovely bank of the rhine this comparison to which a wag had compelled them produced the most agreeable results we do not think of ourselves when we look in a mirror but we feel ourselves and allow ourselves to pass thus it is also with those moral imitations in which we recognize our manners and inclinations, our habits and peculiarities, as in a silhouette, and strive to grasp it and embrace it with brotherly affection. The habit of being together became more and more confirmed, and nothing else was known but that I belonged to this circle. The affair was allowed to take its course without the question being directly asked as to what was to be the result. And what parents are there who do not find themselves compelled to let daughters and sons continue for a while in such a wavering condition, until accidentally something is confirmed for life, better than it could have been produced by a long-arranged plan? It was thought that perfect confidence could be placed both in Frederica's sentiments and in my rectitude, of which, on account of my forbearance, even from innocent caresses, a favorable opinion had been entertained. We were left unobserved, as was generally the custom, there and then, and it depended on ourselves to go over the country with a larger or smaller party, and to visit the friends in the neighborhood. On both sides of the Rhine, in Hagenau, Fort Louis, Philipsburg, the Ortenon, I found dispersed those persons whom I had seen united at Sessenheim, every one by himself, 
a friendly, hospitable host, throwing open kitchen and cellar just as willingly as gardens and vineyards, nay, the whole spot. The islands on the Rhine were often a goal to our water expeditions. There, without pity, we put the cool inhabitants of the clear Rhine into the kettle, on the spit, into the boiling fat, and would here perhaps, more than was reasonable, have settled ourselves in the snug fishermen's huts, if the abominable Rhine gnats, Rhine schnacken, had not, after some hours, driven us away. At this intolerable interruption of one of our most charming parties of pleasure, when everything else was prosperous, when the affection of the lovers seemed to increase with the good success of the enterprise, and we had nevertheless come home too soon, unsuitably and inopportunely, I actually, in the presence of the good reverend father, broke out into blasphemous expressions and assured him that these gnats alone were sufficient to remove from me the thought that a good and wise deity had created the world. The pious old gentleman, by way of reply, solemnly called me to order and explained to me that these gnats and other vermin had not arisen until after the fall of our first parents, or that if there were any of them in paradise, they had only pleasantly hummed there and had not stung. I certainly felt myself calmed at once, for an angry man may easily be appeased if we can succeed in making him smile. But nevertheless I asserted that there was no need of the angel with the burning sword to drive the guilty pair out of the garden. My host, I said, must rather allow me to think that this was effected by means of great gnats on the Tigris and the Euphrates. And thus I again made him laugh, for the old man understood a joke, or at any rate let one pass. However, the enjoyment of the daytime and season in this noble country was more serious and more elevating to the heart. One had only to resign oneself to the present, to enjoy the clearness of the pure sky, the brilliancy of the rich earth, the mild evenings, the warm nights by the side of a beloved one, or in her vicinity. For months together we were favored with pure ethereal mornings when the sky displayed itself in all its magnificence, having watered the earth with superfluous dew, and that this spectacle might not become too simple, clouds after clouds piled themselves over the distant mountains, now in this spot, now in that. They stood for days, nay, for weeks, without obscuring the pure sky, and even the transient storms refreshed the country and gave luster to the green, which again glistened in the sunshine before it could become dry. The double rainbow, the two colored borders of a dark gray and nearly black streak in the sky, were nobler, more highly colored, more decided, but also more transient than I had ever observed. In the midst of these objects, the desire of poeticizing, which I had not felt for a long time, again came forward. For Frederica I composed many songs to well-known melodies. They would have made a pretty little book. A few of them still remain, and will easily be found among my others.
since on account of my strange studies and other circumstances, I was often compelled to return to the town. There arose for our affection a new life, which preserved us from all that unpleasantness which usually attaches itself as an annoying consequence of such little love affairs. Though far from me, she yet labored for me, and thought of some new amusement against I should return. Though far from her, I employed myself for her, that by some new gift or new notion I myself might be again new to her. Painted ribbons had then just come into fashion. I painted at once for her a few pieces, and sent them on with a little poem, as on this occasion I was forced to stop away longer than I had anticipated, that I might fulfill and even go beyond my promise to the father of a new and elaborated plan, I persuaded a young adept in architecture to work instead of myself. He took as much pleasure in the task as he had kindness for me, and was still further animated by the hope of a good reception in so agreeable a family. He finished the ground plan, sketch, and section of the house. Courtyard and garden were not forgotten and a detailed but very moderate estimate was added to show the possibility of carrying out an extensive project. These testimonials of our friendly endeavors obtained for us the kindest reception, and since the good father saw that we had the best will to serve him, he came forward with one wish more. It was the wish to see his pretty but one-colored chair adorned with flowers and other ornaments we showed ourselves accommodating. Colors, pencils, and other requisites were fetched from the tradesmen and apothecaries of the nearest towns, but that we might not be wanting in a Wakefield mistake, we did not remark, until all had been most industriously and variously painted, that we had taken a false varnish which would not dry. Neither sunshine nor drought, neither fair nor wet weather were of any avail. In the meanwhile, we were obliged to make use of an old lumber-room, and nothing was left us but to rub out the ornaments with more assiduity than we had painted them. The unpleasantness of this work was still increased when the girls entreated us, for heaven's sake, to proceed slowly and cautiously for the sake of sparing the ground, which, however, after this operation, was not again to be restored to its former brilliancy. By such little disagreeable contingencies, which happened at intervals, we were, however, just as little interrupted in our cheerful life as Dr. Primrose and his amiable family. For many an unexpected pleasure befell both ourselves and our friends and neighbors. Weddings and christenings, the erection of a building, an inheritance, a prize in the lottery, were reciprocally announced and enjoyed. We shared all joy together like a common property, and wished to heighten it by mind and love. It was not the first nor the last time that I found myself in families and social circles at the very moment of their highest bloom, and if I may flatter myself that I contributed something toward the luster of such epochs, I must, on the other hand, be reproached for the fact that on this very account such times passed the more quickly and vanished the sooner. But now our love was to undergo a singular trial. I will call it a trial, prufung, 
although this is not the right word. The country family with which I was intimate was related to some families in the city of good note and respectability, and comfortably off as to circumstances. The young townspeople were often at Sessenheim, the older persons, the mothers and aunts, being less movable, heard so much of the life there, of the increasing charms of the daughters, and even of my influence, that they first wished to become acquainted with me, and after I had often visited them, and had been well received by them, desired also to see us once altogether, especially as they thought they owed the Sessenheim folks a friendly reception in return. There was much discussion on all sides. The mother could scarcely leave her household affairs. Olivia had a horror of the town for which she was not fitted, and Frederica had no inclination for it, and thus the affair was put off until it was at last brought to a decision by the fact that it happened to be impossible for me to come into the country, for it was better to see each other in the city and under some restraint than not to see each other at all. And thus I now found my fair friends, whom I had been only accustomed to see in a rural scene, and whose image had only appeared to me hitherto before a background of waving bows, flowing brooks, nodding field flowers, and a horizon open for miles. I now saw them, I say, for the first time, in town rooms, which were indeed spacious, but yet narrow, if we take into consideration the carpets, glasses, clocks, and porcelain figures. The relation to that which one loves is so decided that the surrounding objects have little to do with it, but nevertheless the heart desires that these shall be the suitable, natural, and usual objects. With my lively feeling for everything present, I could not at once adopt myself to the contradiction of the moment. The respectable and calmly noble demeanor of the mother was perfectly adapted to the circle. She was not different from the other ladies. Olivia, on the other hand, showed herself as impatient as a fish out of water. As she had formerly called to me in the gardens, or beckoned me aside in the fields if she had anything particular to say to me, she also did the same here, when she drew me into the recess of a window. This she did awkwardly and with embarrassment, because she felt that it was not becoming, and did it notwithstanding. She had the most unimportant things in the world to say to me, nothing but what I already knew. For instance, that she wished herself by the Rhine, over the Rhine, or even in Turkey. Frederica, on the contrary, was highly remarkable in this situation. Properly speaking, she also did not suit it, but it bore witness to her character that, instead of finding herself adapted to this condition, she unconsciously molded the condition according to herself. She acted here as she had acted with the society in the country. She knew how to animate every moment. Without creating any disturbance, she put all in motion, and exactly by this pacified society, which really is only disturbed by ennui. She thus completely fulfilled the desire of her town aunts, who wished for once, on their sofas, to be witnesses of those rural games and amusements. If this was done to satisfaction, so also were the wardrobe, the ornaments, and whatever besides distinguished the town nieces, who were dressed in the French fashion, considered and admired without envy. 
With me also Frederica had no difficulty, since she treated me the same as ever. She seemed to give me no other preference but that of communicating her desires and wishes to me rather than to another, and thus recognizing me as her servant. To this service she confidently laid claim on one of the following days when she privately told me that the ladies wished to hear me read. The daughters of the house had spoken much on this subject, for at Sessenheim I had read what and when I was desired. I was ready at once, but craved quiet and attention for several hours. This was conceded, and one evening I read through the whole of Hamlet without interruption entering into the sense of the piece as well as I was able, and expressing myself with liveliness and passion, as is possible in youth. I earned great applause. Frederica drew her breath deeply from time to time, and a transient red had passed over her cheeks. These two symptoms of a tender heart internally moved, while cheerfulness and calmness were externally apparent, were not unknown to me, and were indeed the only reward which I had striven to obtain. She joyfully collected the thanks of the party for having caused me to read, and in her graceful manner did not deny herself the little pride of having shown in me, and through me. This town visit was not to have lasted long, but the departure was delayed. Frederica did her part for the social amusement, and I was not wanting, but the abundant sources which yield so much in the country now dried up in their turn and the situation was the more painful, as the elder sister gradually lost all self-control. The two sisters were the only persons in the society who dressed themselves in the German fashion. Frederica had never thought of herself in any other way, and believed herself so right everywhere that she made no comparisons with anyone else. But Olivia found it quite insupportable to move about in a society of genteel appearance attired so like a maid-servant. In the country she scarcely remarked the town costume of others, and did not desire it. But in the town she could not endure the country style. All this, together with the different lot of town ladies, and the thousand trifles of a series of circumstances totally opposed to her own notions, so worked for some days in her impassioned bosom, that I was forced to apply all my flattering attention to appease her, according to the wish of Frederica. I feared an impassioned scene. I looked forward to the moment when she would throw herself at my feet and implore me by all that was sacred to rescue her from this situation. She was good to a heavenly degree if she could conduct herself in her own way, but such a restraint at once made her uncomfortable and could at last drive her even to despair. I now sought to hasten that which was desired by the mother and Olivia and not repugnant to Frederica. I did not refrain from praising her as a contrast to her sister. I told her what pleasure it gave me to find her unaltered, and, even under the present circumstances, just as free as the bird among the branches. She was courteous enough to reply that I was there, and that she wished to go neither in nor out when I was with her. At last I saw them take their departure and it seemed as though a stone fell from my heart, for my own feelings had shared the condition of Frederica and Olivia. I was not passionately tormented like the former, but I felt by no means as comfortable as the latter. Since I had properly gone to Strasbourg to take my degree, 
it may be rightly reckoned among the irregularities of my life that I treated this material business as a mere collateral affair. All anxiety as to my examination I had put aside in a very easy fashion, but I had now to think of the disputation. Footnote. A polemic dissertation written on taking an university degree. Translator. End footnote. For on my departure from Frankfurt I had promised my father, and resolved within myself to write one. It is the fault of those who can do many things, nay, much, that they trust everything to themselves, and youth must indeed be in this position, if anything is to be made of it. A survey of the science of jurisprudence and all its framework I had pretty well acquired. Single subjects of law sufficiently interested me, and as I had the good laser for my model, I thought I should get tolerably through with my own little common sense. Great movements were showing themselves in jurisprudence. Judgments were to be more according to equity. All rights by usage were daily seen to be compromised, and in the criminal department especially a great change was impending. As for myself, I felt well enough that I lacked an infinite deal to fill up the legal commonplace which I had proposed. The proper knowledge was wanting, and no inner tendency urged me to such subjects. Neither was there any impulse from without, nay, quite another faculty, footnote, medicine, translator, end footnote, had completely carried me away. In general, if I was to take any interest in a thing, it was necessary for me to gain something from it, to perceive in it something that appeared fertile to me and gave me prospects. Thus I had once more noted down some materials, had afterwards made collections, had taken my books of extracts in hand, had considered the point which I wished to maintain, the scheme according to which I wished to arrange the single elements, but I was sharp enough soon to perceive that I could not get on, and that to treat the special matter, a special and long pursuing industry was requisite, nay, that such a special task cannot be successfully accomplished unless, upon the whole, one is at any rate an old hand, if not a master. The friends to whom I communicated my embarrassment deemed me ridiculous, because one can dispute upon theses as well, nay, even better, than upon a treatise, and in Strasbourg this was not uncommon. I allowed myself to be very well inclined to such an expedient, but my father, to whom I wrote on the subject, desired a regular work which, as he thought, I could very well prepare, if I only chose so to do and allowed myself proper time. I was now compelled to throw myself upon some general topic and to choose something which I should have at my fingers' ends. Ecclesiastical history was almost better known to me than the history of the world and that conflict in which the church, the publicly recognized worship of God, finds itself, and always will find itself, in two different directions, had always highly interested me. For now it lies in an eternal conflict with the state, over which it will exalt itself, now with the individuals, all of whom it will gather to itself. The state, on its side, will not yield the superior authority to the church, and the individuals oppose its restraints. The state desires everything for public, universal ends. The individual for ends belonging to the home, heart, and feelings. From my childhood upwards, I had been a witness of such movements when the clergy now offended their authorities, 
now their congregations. I had therefore established it as a principle in my young mind that the state, the legislator, had the right to determine a worship according to which the clergy should teach and conduct themselves, and the laity, on the other hand, should direct themselves publicly and externally, while there should be no question about anyone's thoughts, feelings, or notions. Thus I perceived that I had at once got rid of all collisions. I therefore chose for my disputation the first half of this theme, namely that the legislator was not only authorized but bound to establish a certain worship from which neither the clergy nor the laity might free themselves. I carried out this theme partly historically, partly argumentatively, showing that all public religions had been introduced by leaders of armies, kings, and powerful men, that this had even been the case with Christianity. The example of Protestantism lay quite close at hand. I went to work at this task with so much the more boldness, as I really only wrote it to satisfy my father and desired and hoped nothing more ardently than that it might not pass the censorship. I had imbibed from Bachish an unconquerable dislike to see anything of mine in print, and my intercourse with Herder had discovered to me but too plainly my own insufficiency, nay, a certain mistrust in myself, had through this means been perfectly matured. As I drew this work almost entirely out of myself, and wrote and spoke Latin with fluency, the time which I expended on the treatise passed very agreeably. The matter had at least some foundation. The style, naturally speaking, was not bad. The whole was pretty well rounded off. As soon as I had finished it, I went through it with a good Latin scholar, who, although he could not, on the whole, improve my style, yet easily removed all striking defects, so that something was produced that was fit to be shown. A fair copy was at once sent to my father, who disapproved of one thing, namely, that none of the subjects previously taken in hand had been worked out. But nevertheless, as a thorough Protestant, he was well pleased with the boldness of the plan. My singularities were tolerated, my exertions were praised, and he promised himself an important effect from the publication of the work. I now handed over my papers to the faculty who fortunately behaved in a manner as prudent as it was polite. The dean, a lively, clever man, began with many laudations of my work, then went on to what was doubtful, which he contrived gradually to change into something dangerous, and concluded by saying that it might not be advisable to publish this work as an academical dissertation. The aspirant had shown himself to the faculty as a thinking young man, of whom they might hope the best. They would willingly, not to delay the affair, allow me to dispute on theses. I could afterwards publish my treatise, either in its present condition or more elaborated, in Latin, or in another language. This would everywhere be easy to me as a private man and a Protestant, and I should have the pleasure of an applause more pure and more general. I scarcely concealed from the good man what a stone his discourse rolled from my heart. At every new argument which he advanced, that he might not trouble me, nor make me angry by his refusal, my mind grew more and more easy, and so did his own at last, when, quite unexpectedly, I offered no resistance to his reasons, but, on the contrary, found them extremely obvious, and promised to conduct myself according to his counsel and guidance. 
I therefore sat down again with my repentance. Theses were chosen and printed, and the disputation, with the opposition of my fellow boarders, went off with great merriment, and even with facility, for my old habit of turning over the corpus juris was very serviceable to me, and I could pass for a well-instructed man. A good feast, according to custom, concluded the solemnity. My father, however, was very dissatisfied that the little work had not been regularly printed as a disputation, because he had hoped that I should gain honor by it on my entrance into Frankfurt. He therefore wished to publish it especially, but I represented to him that the subject, which was only sketched, could be more completely carried out at some future time. He put up the manuscript carefully for this purpose, and many years afterwards I saw it among his papers. I took my degree on the 6th of August, 1771, and on the following day Schufflin died in the 75th year of his age. Even without closer contact, he had had an important influence upon me. For eminent contemporaries may be compared to the greater stars, towards which, so long as they merely stand above the horizon, our eye is turned and feels strengthened and cultivated if it is only allowed to take such perfections into itself. Bountiful nature had given Schupflin an advantageous exterior, a slender form, kindly eyes, a ready mouth, and a thoroughly agreeable presence. Neither had she been sparing in gifts of mind to her favorite, and his good fortune was the result of innate and carefully cultivated merits without any troublesome exertion. He was one of those happy men who are inclined to unite the past and the present, and understand how to connect historical knowledge with the interests of life. Born in the Baden territory, educated at Basel and Strasbourg, he quite properly belonged to the paradisiacal valley of the Rhine, as an extensive and well-situated fatherland. His mind being directed to historical and antiquarian objects, he readily seized upon them with a felicitous power of representation, and retained them by the most convenient memory. Desirous as he was both of learning and of teaching, he pursued a course of study and of life which equally advanced. He soon emerges and rises above the rest, without any kind of interruption, diffuses himself with ease through the literary and citizen world, for historical knowledge passes everywhere, and affability attaches itself everywhere. He travels through Germany, Holland, France, Italy. He comes in contact with all the learned men of his time. He amuses princes, and it is only when, by his lively loquacity, the hours of the table or of audience are lengthened, that he is tedious to the people at court. On the other hand, he acquires the confidence of the statesmen, works out for them the most profound legal questions, and thus finds everywhere a field for his talent. In many places they attempt to retain him, but he remains faithful to Strasbourg and the French court. His immovable German honesty is recognized even there. He is even protected against the powerful Praetor Klingling, who is secretly his enemy. Sociable and talkative by nature, he extends his intercourse with the world, as well as his knowledge and occupations and we should hardly be able to understand whence he got all his time did we not know that a dislike to women accompanied him through his whole life, 
and that thus he gained many days and hours which are happily thrown away by those who are well disposed towards the ladies. For the rest, he belongs as an author to the ordinary sort of character, and as an orator to the multitude. His program, his speeches, and addresses are devoted to the particular day, to the approaching solemnity. Nay, his great work, Alsatia Illustrata, belongs to life, as he recalls the past, freshens up faded forms, reanimates the hewn and the formed stone, and brings obliterated broken inscriptions for a second time before the eyes and mind of his reader. In such a manner, his activity fills all Alsatia and the neighboring country. In Baden and the Palatinate, he preserves to an extreme old age an uninterrupted influence. At Mannheim, he founds the Academy of Sciences, and remains president of it till his death. I never approached this eminent man, excepting on one night when we gave him a torch serenade. Our pitch torches more filled with smoke than lighted the courtyard of the old chapter house, which was overarched by linden trees. When the noise of the music had ended, he came forward and stepped into the midst of us, and here also was in his right place. The slender, well-grown, cheerful old man stood with his light, free manners, venerably before us, and held us worthy the honor of a well-considered address, which he delivered to us in an amiable, paternal manner, without a trace of restraint or pedantry so that we really thought ourselves something for the moment. For indeed, he treated us like the kings and princes whom he had been so often called upon to address in public. We testified our satisfaction aloud, trumpets and drums repeatedly sounded, and the dear, hopeful, academical plebs then found its way home with hearty satisfaction. His scholars and companions in study, Kosh and Oberlin, were men in close connection with me, my taste for antiquarian remains was passionate. They often led me into the museum, which contained, in many ways, the voucher to his great work on Alsace. Even this work I had not known intimately until after that journey, when I had found antiquities on the spot, and now being perfectly advanced, I could, on longer or shorter expeditions, render present to myself the valley of the Rhine as a Roman possession, and finish coloring many a dream of times past. Scarcely had I made some progress in this than Oberland directed me to the monuments of the Middle Ages, and made me acquainted with the ruins and remains, the seals and documents, which those times have left behind them, nay, sought to inspire me with an inclination for what we call the main singers, and heroic poets. To this good man, as well as to Herakosh, I have been greatly indebted, and if things had gone according to their wish, I should have had to thank them for the happiness of my life. The matter stood thus. Schupflin, for his whole lifetime, had moved in the higher sphere of political law, and well knew the great influence which such and kindred studies are likely to procure for a sound head, in courts and cabinets, felt an insuperable, nay, unjust aversion from the situation of a civilian, and had inspired his scholars with the like sentiments. The above-mentioned two men, friends of Salzman, had taken notice of me in a most friendly manner. My impassioned grasping at external objects, the manner in which I continued to bring forward their advantages and to communicate to them a particular interest they prized higher than I did myself. My slight, and I may say, 
my scanty occupation with the civil law had not remained unobserved by them they were well enough acquainted with me to know how easily i was to be influenced i had made no secret of my liking for an academical life and they therefore thought to gain me over to history political law and rhetoric at first for a time but afterwards more decidedly the prospect of the german chancery at versailles the precedent of schupflin whose merits indeed seemed to me unattainable were to incite to emulation if not to imitation and perhaps a similar talent was thus to be cultivated which might be both profitable to him who could boast of it and useful to others who might choose to employ it on their own account these my patrons and salesmen with them went to great value on my memory and my capacity for apprehending the sense of languages and chiefly by these sought to further their views and plans end of book eleven part two